0: Our reading this morning is from Colossians chapter 1, verses 12 to 23. The Father has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning,
1: my name is Jeff. For those of you who don't know me, I'm one of the pastors here. Um, I've probably shared this before, but you know, one of the challenges of preaching is not just, you know, some, some of us have fear of speaking in front of people, but one of the real challenges is realizing that you have something glorious in God's Word that you are trying to help people to hear and understand. And I will tell you with this passage, this is one of the times that I have felt this most acutely, this... This is a treasure, this is glorious, and and I know in in and of myself, I am not up to helping us to see what is said in these verses. So would you please join with me in praying before we continue in this passage? Father, throughout this week, many of us have been praying that you would fill us with the knowledge of your will, that we would be fruitful, that we would be changed through this. And Lord, I pray that even right now as we consider this word that you have spoken to us together, would you please help me, would you please help us to see Jesus, to be drawn more closely to him, to be connected to him, that more and more he would be at the center of our lives. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So as I already mentioned, we, uh, in prayer, we have been praying, many of us throughout this week, um, this this prayer, Father, fill us with the knowledge of your will. Father, fill us with the knowledge of your will. We, We pray that not just because that's a thing in and of itself that we want, to grow in the knowledge of God and what he is doing in this world, but because scripture says that as we come to understand this and truly be ...filled by this understanding. It changes us. That as we come to know what God's plan is... ...and we see his grace... ...and we taste of the reality of his hope... ...there is a power to that that enables us to grow. And so we pray. And we pray following Paul's example. Paul in the beginning of Colossians... ...starts by praying for the Colossian church. So that you may grow... ...I pray that you would be filled... With the understanding, with the knowledge of, the, of God's will. So that's what we saw last week. And, and this week we see Paul immediately moving and writing to this church that he doesn't know but he cares about. Moving to helping them to understand just what that will of God is. In some ways he is seeking already to see that prayer be answered by saying let me tell you what God's gracious hope giving will is. And here is what he says it is. God's will for you is to connect you to Jesus so that Jesus would be at the very center of your life. God's will for you, God's will for this church, God's will for this entire world is to connect us to Jesus so that he would be at the very center of all of us, of this world. And that's what we really see in in this morning's passage. Our time is going to be especially spent on this hymn of verses 15 through 20. Most people think it's a hymn either Paul wrote or someone else did because it has a very poetic structure. And it's a hymn that has two distinct parts. Um, If you don't have your bulletins open, I invite you to have it because we'll just kind of be walking through it. And the first part is, is verses 15 through 17 where it talks about creation and Christ Jesus. And then verses 18 through 20, we see the work of reconciliation through Christ Jesus. So it's creation and and reconciliation. And it's all about Christ. And what I should warn you of ahead of time is that in this passage, God puts you and me in our place. You know, I've uh, read recently, I think it was in Psychology Today... Uh, ...that we are living in an age of entitlement. And by entitlement, when the person's writing, he's talking about... ...kind of an overinflated sense of superiority, of importance, and of deservingness. that, That we are owed good things. And at least what some argue is that more than ever before in our country, in our age... ...people have this overwhelming sense of entitlement. That we deserve stuff. I don't know if that's true. You know, my guess is that's been a problem throughout ages, but I do feel like we're talking about it more. I I can think of times where I've heard, and every time someone talks about entitlement, there is like an edge to their voice, there's an exasperation. You know, so someone might be talking of their employee, and saying, you know what, they are young, they've just started, they're doing average work, and they want all these recognitions and promotions, they're just so entitled. Or you might hear someone talk about, oh, you know, this friend of mine in school, she's angry with her parents because they don't get their yearly trip to Italy. She's just so entitled. It it annoys us, doesn't it? Like, when we sense that someone feels like the world owes them all these things, we we, we see them as being out of touch with reality. And I think we kind of feel annoyed because we feel like they expect us to do great things for them as well. We don't like entitlement. Now, perhaps if you're wondering, okay, I'm not exactly sure what entitlement is. Let me, let me tell you. Here's a test. I found this on the internet, which means it's true. Where you've got, here's five questions to ask ourselves. I actually think these are appropriate questions to ask about, do we have an entitlement complex? So someone is entitled if, one, you impose unrealistic demands on your family, friends, significant other, employee. Two, people have entitlement if, you tend to feel sorry for yourself if things don't work out the way you want them to and you make sure others know about that as well. Three, you exhibit many double standards in your behavior and interactions with others. For example, it's okay if you're late, but it's not okay if someone else is late. Four, you look out for yourself first. Your needs and desires are more important than anyone else's most of the time. Five, You want to be admired and adored. So let's have a moment of honesty here. Um, I think that just described me. I can impose unrealistic demands on my family, friends. Don't talk to Jennifer about it, but she might acknowledge that that's probably sometimes true. Tend to feel sorry for yourself if things don't work out the way you want them to and you want others to know. Okay. Exhibit double standards, expecting other people to do things that you don't do. You look out for yourself first. You want to be admired and adored. I hope I'm not the only one who right now realizes that's describing me. Not all the time, right? I think many of us were growing, we're being changed, but doesn't that at least some of the time hit the mark of who we are? So either one of those two things are true. One, that test is wrong and we can just ignore it and shrug our shoulders. Or two, it's saying many, most maybe, maybe even all of us have a problem with being entitled i got to say, I think it's probably the second of those options. My guess is you would agree with that. That as we think about ourselves, when we think about our world, who is the hero of the world in which we live? It's us. Who is the center of our reality? It's us. Who is the person that we care most about, that they are made happy, and that things go well for them? It's us. We, whether we acknowledge it or not, have a sense of importance and we feel like the world owes certain things to us. We have a problem with entitlements. And I bring this up because in this passage I really believe God is gently but firmly putting us in our place. And he's saying to you and he's saying to me, it is not about you. This world is not about you. This world is all about Jesus. And and it just starts right out with that very idea. It says, Jesus, in verse 15, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. These two phrases really are, are saying the same thing in different ways. And that is, Jesus is in charge. He is the single most important person in this world. So in ancient times, the image of a ruler would be someone who represents the rule to the area. So sometimes you'd have statues, and that statue of the king would remind people that that king rules over them. Or sometimes you would even have... uh, people would speak of the son of the king being the image of the king. That is, wherever the son went, whatever he said represented the will of the king. So he had the authority of the king. And, And firstborn is a very similar idea. Firstborn is not primarily thinking about birth order in and of itself, it's a title. The firstborn of a ruler was someone who had the authority over the father's business. If it was the firstborn of a king, it was someone who could represent the authority of the king. And and Paul is saying here, Jesus, he's not just the, the, the image of a king. He's not just the firstborn of a king. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn over all creation. Everything is under him. Everything belongs to him. He is the most important person in the world. Because we read, By him, all things were created. And it's interesting to me that Paul wants to make sure we really understand that when he means all things, he means all things. So it says, whether thrones, sorry, uh, all things were created in heaven, on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things... So, everything. So, so Jesus is involved with the creation of the planets and the stars scattered throughout space. All things were made through him. We think of the, the, the microscopic detail of, the, of quarks and atoms and molecules. That's through Jesus. The, the animals, the plants, the birds... All things were made through him. Even things that we don't really understand. Like, like angels. They came together through Jesus. I, I don't understand. And none of us really understand the way that the Trinity works. But I think we can get just a, just a hint. Just a taste. If we can imagine. That when God said. Let there be light. The Son fully understanding exactly what the Father meant immediately designs like wave particle theory so that light would be both waves and particles and he determined that the speed of light would remain constant throughout. And when God the Father says, let there be animals, immediately the Son, knowing the mind of the Father, chose for there to be aardvarks and ladybugs and cocker spaniels. All things were made through the Son. Long before Jesus walks on the grass by the Sea of Galilee, he already, together with the Father, designed grass. And how the H2O molecule would work. And what would fill the sea around him. Everything. Everything, that we see was made through Jesus. But it goes and says more than that. Not only were all things made through him... ...all things were made for him. This world was not made for you. It was not made for me. It was made for the Son. The very purpose of this entire world... ...its goal... ...is Jesus. Everything here was made... ...to have Jesus as its king... ...to obey him... ...to worship him. All things were made... ...for him. And so verse 17 summarizes it up. It summarizes it. It says, he is before all things. That is, he is the source of everything. Everything that exists owes its existence. We owe our existence to Jesus. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. I'll tell you, this last statement was the one that I spent most time thinking about. In Jesus... All things hold together. What does that even mean? I think a good way of understanding it is this. Think for a moment about our solar system. The planets, the moons, they all hold together because they orbit around the sun. Because they have a center. The center holds all the planets together so that everything fits, right? Or maybe you can think at work. Sometimes you are part of a company or part of a work where you feel like everything is working together. Maybe you are a contractor and you have a really big project and you and everyone working with you are just focused and everyone has a role because all of you are working towards the same goal. That goal holds you together. Or or maybe if you're in a company that has a clear sense of purpose and everyone with every role knows how they're supposed to contribute to that, that goal, that sense of purpose holds it all together. And Paul says, that's how Jesus is to this world. Jesus is what holds all of this together. Everything exists with the goal of Jesus. Everything, all of us, every creature, every detail, every atom... ...all of it exists to you worshipping the king of the universe... ...who is the the image of the invisible God. Do you see what he is saying? It's all about Jesus... And that means it's not all about you. You and I are not the center of everything. Compared to Jesus, you and I honestly are just not that important. Now, that might feel like, okay, this is kind of a downer. I mean, I I don't like feeling that way. I'd rather feel like I'm important. But it's important for us to realize that one of the best things that can happen to people who have a sense of entitlement, it's for them to be put in their place. One of the best things that can happen to us is that we're humbled. Because think of what happens, how entitlement can suck the joy out of life. When we feel like good things are owed to us, when we feel like we're really important, then when good things don't happen, we don't just get sad, which is of course appropriate, but we can get Angry, frustrated, resentful, bitter. And when good things do happen, boy, it makes it hard to be grateful if we feel like that's just what's coming to us. So rather than looking and realizing, I so don't deserve this and yet it's given to me. This is beautiful and being able to rejoice, it just makes it feel like, huh, that's what I deserve. Entitlement takes the joy out of life, which means the best thing that can happen to you and to me is to be humbled and to see reality truly. And to see that it is not about us. I mean, what a relief. We're not the most important people in the world. We're not the center of everything. Jesus is the center of everything. In fact, I would go to say that perhaps the single biggest aspect of growth for Christians is the work that God is doing to take us out of the center of our lives and more and more to put Jesus in the center. That is the, the most succinct summi- summary I know of what Christian growth is. It is to become decentered. It is more and more to realize I am not the most important person in the world I am not at the center of everything and more and more to realize and Jesus is. So that our desires, everything is about seeing Jesus as the center of everything. And not only is that good for our soul, that's good for so many other things. That's good for a marriage. If after the romance period of a marriage where things start just kind of becoming a bit more real, it it oftentimes can be the place that both people, whether they would acknowledge it or not, want to be the center of the universe. And if you have two things that are trying to be the center that doesn't work well... It's like two planets trying to figure out how to revolve or stay. Or whatever. I mean, I don't know. It's a bad analogy, but it just doesn't fit, right? It can crash together. Now the answer to this is not for one person to give in and say, "I will orbit the other." The answer for a marriage is for both to realize that we're not the center, and to find their place to be held together by Jesus being the center of their relationship. The best thing that can happen to a marriage is for both people to realize deeply that Jesus is at the center of their marriage and that their marriage is for Jesus and not for them. And it's true of the worlds too. The way that society can hold together, the way that everything can hold together is if they are all in their right place orbiting around Christ. With Christ as the center because everything is for Jesus. Everything has its harmony, has its peace in Jesus. Jesus is the one that all things hold together through. Of course, that raises the real problem. Things things aren't holding together. We know this, right? I mean, all you have to do is look at the news. We've just sent missiles on Syria because Syria used weapons against its own people. That is not the world holding together. It's tearing apart. Or we think about our own society and how much distrust there is between different races, between men and women, between different classes, between political parties. And it feels like everything is tearing apart. We've, we know of people, friends, who are going through marriage breakups. Everything is tearing apart. We think of even this world. We hear of like this, these massive islands of pollution in the middle of the ocean and of weather change. The world is tearing apart. And even we... We sometimes, in our anxieties and our confusions, we don't feel harmony and peace. And the reason is because we've lost our center. The only way this world holds together is through Jesus being the center. All things are for him. If you know your Bibles, you know that scripture tells us that, that many, many generations ago, humanity decided we don't want Jesus to be the center. The decision was made that we wants to be the center of our world, the center of our lives. And that's the decision that humanity has made generation after generation after generation, and it is tearing this world apart. It's tearing our relationship with God apart because we turned our backs on God. But it's tearing each other apart. I mean, going back to the solar system analogy, what happens if every planet decides it's not going to be connected to the sun anymore? Either they'll crash into each other, or they'll spin off into darkness... Or what happens if you are in a company where there is no sense of goal or purpose and everyone is just out for themselves? It's ugly. There's backstabbing, there's throwing people under the bus. And that's what this world is. When we have said Jesus is not the center, everything is crashing and falling apart because we're all trying to be the centers and it is miserable and it is broken and it is our fault. And the mess that we've made, because we've all lost the thing that holds us all together, it raises a question. What will God do with a world that has utterly rejected him, that has botched everything, that has taken away its center? Well, what would you do? Uh, Imagine this scenario for a moment. Imagine... um, you have some distant relative, maybe a great uncle or something like that, that you find out to your surprise has left you a house, which is awesome. And so you visit the house and you, you look at it. And there are like holes throughout the roof and tons of water damage and molds. And you see some fire damage actually in one room. And everywhere you look, there are rats, and it stinks, and it's awful. So what do you do when you've inherited a house like that? Well, you really only have two options that I know of. You can, and I think this is what almost everyone will do, you can bulldoze it, right? It's just like, hey, let's get rid of this thing and start over again. Maybe you'll just sell the land. But if you look at it and for some reason you, you see something that you really like about it, you, you have some vision of what it used to be, Or even more, when you look at it, you have some vision of what it could be. You could decide to do the thing that is far more difficult and far more expensive. You could renovate it. You could restore it. You could make it the way it was or even better than it once was. And that's the decision that God has as he looks at this world. Does he do what really we all deserve and just destroy this world that has rejected its center and has torn apart? That would be by far the easier thing. But we know that's not the choice that God makes. And that gets us to the second half of our hymn. Verse 18, key. Again we're talking about Jesus, is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Now there's a lot here, but it's clear that we're starting to talk about a new thing. Not just about creation. Notice he is the beginning. And it's not talking about the beginning of the creation. He's already said that. It's the beginning of something new. It's the beginning of something that happens with Jesus being the firstborn from the dead. It's it's something new that's happening through the body. The church. And we understand more when we keep going... For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things. Whether on earth or in heaven. Making peace by the blood of the cross. Do you see what it's saying? God is not getting rid of us. He's not destroying this world. He's decided to renovate. He's beginning something new through the resurrection. And what's happening is he is reconciling. He is reconnecting everything back to Jesus so that it one day can begin to be the thing that he created it to be. Do you see that? He's reconciling all things. Reconciling is just another word for saying reconnecting. Taking care of the broken relationship and renewing it and bringing it back to the way that it was. And it's all, again, through Jesus. Just like with creation, it all happened through Jesus. Notice here, it says, everything that God is doing, when he's reconciling, he's reconciling through Jesus and to Jesus. It's all about Jesus, so that Jesus, once again, is preeminent. Now, any renovation that we know of, it begins with what? Demolition, right? And that also is true for when God is renovating the world. There first needs to be a demolition of all that is wrong, ...all that is evil, all that is terrible, all that separates the relationship between God and us. And that's exactly how it begins when it speaks about how Jesus makes peace by the blood of his cross. What he does is he takes our sin, he takes our guilt, he takes everything with him... ...and he destroys all of that by going to death and bringing it to death with him on the cross... He demolishes all that stands in the way so that once again we can have a relationship with God. But it doesn't stop at demolition. Demolition is only the beginning. Then there's the renovation. And we see that in verse 18 when it says he's the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning. The firstborn from the dead. In other words, with his resurrection, he began began creation 2.0. He re began the world. He he started a new creation through his resurrection. And once again, he's the center of it. Once again, he's the firstborn, right? It says he's the firstborn of the dead, he's the one who rules over it. Once again, he is the image of the invisible God. It says all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him. He represents God to the world. He's starting again a new world, and this is the world where once again he is the center. That's the point of when it says that he is reconciling to himself all things. So, wherever the gospel is going, whenever people are hearing about the hope and the grace of God, what's happening is in that moment, as they trust in Jesus, the sin and the guilt are removed. And they begin to have this new relationship where Jesus is at the center of their lives. And so they are being recentered upon Christ. And not only them, but as they live, then their families become more re-centered upon Christ. And as they live, their work becomes more recentered on Christ. And what Jesus is doing is he's slowly making the world again. So that once again it's holding together. Once again there's harmony. Once again there's peace, because once again he is the center of all things. That's the will of God. When we're praying, Lord, fill us with the knowledge of your will. We are praying, help us to see. Help us to know what it is that you are doing as you are bringing all of the world back to center upon Jesus. So that Jesus once again is preeminent in all things. And do you notice where we are in this story? The church is the place that this is taking place. The church is the workshop of Jesus. It's the place where he is is reconciling. I mean, he even makes that point in verse 21. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled. You, Colossian Christians, you, the church... God has brought you back so that you are connected with Jesus in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. And Paul could say the same thing about us. Many of you here, you know what this is. To have heard the gospel. To have heard that Jesus died for you. And to come to understand that this world is not about you. It's about Jesus. All of your life, what God is going to be doing is moving you more and more to realize that Jesus is at the center of everything and you are not. And I want to tell you, that's that's really what our mission is. The mission of the church, wherever it is in the world, is to see this world move so that its center once again can be Jesus. And that's what we're about. If you wonder why we do things the way we do on Sunday morning, the songs that we sing, the fact that we have the Lord's Supper every week, it is so that more and more Jesus can be the very center of our lives. The reason we have discipleship groups is so that together we can work to pursue bringing Jesus to the very center because that's the only way that we can be restored. When we talk about things like Newcomer Sunday, and I know sometimes we have a problem with not always communicating this well because it can seem like we're just trying to make Trinity bigger. Trinity is not important. But Jesus is. And, and the way that Jesus is bringing people back to himself is through the church. That's why we want to bring people into this church or to see them come to another. It is because we long to see the world reconnect to Jesus so that Jesus is the very center of everything. You know, I, I found myself um, almost in tears at the very first song that we were singing. Um, That final verse, creation longs for his return when Christ shall reign upon the earth. The bitter wars that rage are birth pains of a coming age. When he renews the land and sky, all heaven will sing and earth reply with one resplendent theme, the glory of our God and King. That's describing the renewed world where Jesus is at the center and everything is right again. I'd like to ask you to, the very same thing I asked last week. Could you keep praying with me? Father, fill us with the knowledge of your will. And know maybe even more this week than you did last week that what that is meaning is, Lord, so help me to understand your will that Jesus more and more would be the very center of who I am, the center of our family, the center of everything. Fill us with the knowledge of your will. I invite you even now to join with me praying. Um, There might be an area where you feel like God has spoken to you where you realize that you've kind of lost sight of who Jesus is and it would be appropriate to confess. Or maybe it's simply to pray, fill us with the knowledge of your will. And then I'll lead us in prayer in a few minutes. Lord God, before you we confess that we are not as important as we perceive ourselves to be. And that you are so much greater than we realize. And we confess that though we often don't see it, though our lives don't live it, Jesus is the center of all things. He is our king. Father, please forgive us where we fail to live that reality out. And please renew us, continue to restore us, continue to reconcile us to Jesus. Lord, would you please fill us with the knowledge of your will that we may more and more be the people you call us to be. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Colossians 1 reminds us that you who once were alienated... And hostile in minds doing evil deeds. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach. Through the death of Jesus Christ your sins are forgiven. And you are reconciled to God. Thanks be to God.